There's that statement, folks don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And whether or not that's always the most helpful attitude, we've all probably received maybe critique from someone, criticism from someone who we feel like doesn't really know us. Or maybe their life doesn't match their critique, that they're not actually living out their critique. And so their critique falls flat. Like, you don't even know me. Why are you, I, I don't even know if you have the basis to, to know enough about me to be leveling that critique. Or who are you to be saying that if you don't even do that yourself? We've probably all had that experience where someone shares a critique with us where it kind of falls flat, but we've also probably had that experience, hopefully we have at least, where someone has shared with us a concern, and this is someone who knows us really well, and it's someone who we know also cares very deeply about us. And so we, we, we can't not but take that, um, that communication quite seriously, that critique seriously. And so similarly here, I want you to kind of get into that mindset as you think about what Paul is doing. Paul here is sharing his burden for the Colossians. He's sharing how much he cares about them. He's sharing his own labor, his own struggle, so that when he gets to exhorting them and challenging them and warning them and instructing them, they will know where he comes from. They will feel where he is coming from. We've gotten done in the last couple of sermons, especially Sam's passage last week. Towards the end, we saw God's, the Father, God the Father, his cosmic plan of redemption, of reconciling all things. And then in, that was in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, specifically the Father's plan. And then in 15 through 23, we see a transition now to a focus on the Son and the Son's role in accomplishing that cosmic plan of redeeming all things. And now here, in chapter 1, verse 24, to chapter 2, verse 5, we move from the Father, the Son, to now the Son's apostle, Jesus Christ or sorry, the, the apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul. And Paul, we're going to see his place in that divine plan of redemption that the Father planned and the Son has accomplished. Paul has been made an apostle of that redeeming Son. And Paul plays a role in this divine plan of redemption by proclaiming that message now across creation. Paul is like a foot soldier tasked with a de delivering a message that will, once received, change the entire course of a war. And in changing the entire course of a war, it will change the entire course of world history. Paul sees himself as a foot soldier of Christ who has been conscribed to, to communicate a message that is nothing less than God's plan to redeem the cosmos. And so Paul is then explaining here to the Colossians how God's plan of cosmic redemption has now reached them, the believers in Colossae. Paul specifically, 
plays a role in this cosmic plan of redemption planned by the Father, accomplished by the preeminent son, Paul, now brings that message of redemption to them as an apostle. And so our sermon in a sentence today, if you want to boil it down, and kids, if you have that worksheet in front of you, that that handout in front of you, you can write this down. This is the message of our passage today. The gospel is worth laboring for. The gospel is worth laboring for. If we were to flesh that out a little bit more, in this passage we see that Paul rejoices to labor for this gospel, what he calls the mystery here. He rejoices to labor for it, even suffering for it, as he longs to see churches reach full maturity and assurance in Christ. Paul rejoices to labor for the mystery of the gospel, even suffering for it, as he longs to see churches reach full maturity and assurance in Christ. Laboring for the gospel is worth it to Paul. And he wants the Colossians specifically to see this example of his labor, of his suffering. To see that if the gospel is worth laboring for and suffering for, then certainly it's worth holding on to and resisting any false teaching. It's worth persevering and it's worth believing. It's worth holding to and resisting any false alternatives. And that's really where he'll go after this point. In chapter 2, verse 6, he's then going to get into the false teaching. So first, though, he wants them to see the gospel that is worth laboring for and is thus worth, worth holding on to. We'll break down our sermon today really into five traits then about Paul's labor for the gospel. Uh, So five traits we're going to walk through about Paul's labor for the gospel. And the first one we're going to look at is Paul's commission. Paul's commission. In verse 25, chapter 1, verse 25, we'll see that Paul has been divinely appointed to proclaim Christ. Look at verse 25 where he says, Of the church, I, Paul, became a minister according to the stewardship of, from God that was given to me, from God, for you to make the word of God fully known. Now, maybe you've been in a meeting with someone, maybe you've had coffee with me or Dan or someone else, and in the middle of the conversation, someone's phone rings on the table, and what is it? It's, the, it's that annoying robocall. It's the unknown number. What do you do? Who answers those, right? Hopefully, hopefully no one does. We all, we all know, like, you get those numbers and you're like, ah, this is a call from New York, upstate New York. I don't know what that is. You don't answer it, right? You silence your phone. But maybe you're in a meeting with someone and their wife calls or their husband calls. You say, well, I better answer this. This could be important, right? We attend to a message. We attend to it in, 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 with greater intensity, with, with greater fervency, depending on who's the, who the message is from. In a similar way, Paul, we should notice, he is saying that his message comes, it originates from none other than God himself. And so it's not some unknown number calling us. This is a God-given message. I became a minister, he says, according to the stewardship that he received to proclaim the word of God. This is a stewardship he received from God. And so I think one of the things that Paul wants the Colossians to see is to see, look, my message that I'm bringing to you, it's a part of a stewardship that I receive from God. Give heed to this message, in other words. Don't steer away from the message. As we're about to get into that false teaching, chapter 2, verse 6, 
Know that the message that I'm calling you to hold on to is one that comes from God. My apostleship is of divine origin. Second, we see Paul's message. So we see Paul's commission. Second, we see Paul's message. And Paul's message is what he refers to as the mystery of God's plan of redemption. He uses that word mystery three times in this passage. The mystery of God's plan of redemption in Christ. Let's read some of these sections that talk about this message. Uh, Continuing on, he talked about making the word of God fully known at the end of verse 25. Then he goes on to describe what that word of God here specifically is. It is, verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, to the saints, God chose to make known, revealing the mystery of how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you or among you, among the Gentiles, that is. Christ, the very hope of glory, the very the reason, the confidence we have of achieving glory with him. We can look at uh, the end of chapter 2, verse 2, where he also talks about reaching the full assurance of understanding of knowledge of God's mystery. And then he defines the mystery here as Christ, which is Christ. It's, it's Christ coming and what Christ has accomplished, the plan of redemption as it has been made known in Christ, as he's accomplished it. Now, when we hear the word mystery in our, in our setting, we use the word mystery typically to refer to things that are difficult, if not impossible, to understand. And that's not really what uh, scripture means by the word mystery, at least normally. Um, mystery here, uh, really coming from its use in Daniel, is referring to something that was previously hidden or secret but is now revealed. And that's what Paul says, right? It's a secret thing that is now revealed. It's now made known. It's something that only God can disclose. And so this, this illustration might not be totally perfect, but, but you might think of it something like encrypted data. If you're familiar enough with technology, you know sometimes we use this thing called encryption, where data is basically and Nathan could probably explain this better than me. I'm probably getting this wrong. But like data is, is basically in a code so that you, can't, you don't know what's being said. You don't know what the data is actually saying unless you have a key to unlock it. Okay? And that's sort of what's going on here. Is where in the Old Testament, the, the, the data was there, but with the arrival of Christ, what was there has now been revealed. It has now been unveiled. God's purposes have been unencrypted in Christ. Or if you're not into technology, maybe it's like when you watch a movie and you watch a movie the second time, you pick up details that were there all along, but now they come to their full meaning in light of how the movie ends. You actually know where those details are headed, so you you pick up on them differently. They were always there. That's how the New Testament uses this idea of mystery. It's referring to things that are unveiled from the Old Testament but in some sense they were hidden, and now they're being disclosed as we see their fulfillment in Jesus. Augustine, one of the greatest theologians of the church, he he said it this way. He said, in the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. In the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. Let me say it again. In the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed there. The New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament, but in the New, the Old is then revealed. The New Testament reveals what the Old Testament 
conceals. And so Paul gets to proclaim this mystery, this, this thing that God has now revealed in the work of Christ. And what is that specific mystery here that he has in mind? It's God's plan of redemption accomplished in Christ, which now extends to the Gentiles as well. It's Christ among you, the riches among the Gentiles, the very hope of glory of the Messiah now also saving Gentiles. And so to an audience that's primarily Gentiles, part of what Paul is saying is don't let anyone discredit you with, as he'll get into, these sort of Jewish regulations that they're demanding of you. Christ is the hope of glory to you. You have been redeemed by him. That's the mystery that I'm proclaiming. Don't let anyone discredit you based on religious criteria that's outside of the gospel. But moreover, by, by showing how just amazing this message is that he gets to proclaim. He gets to proclaim the very mystery, the very unfolding of God's cosmic plan of redemption. Part of that is to just say, don't, don't veer away from that message. Look at the message that I get to proclaim to you. Don't veer away from this Christ, as he says in verse 3. He says, the mystery is Christ, chapter 2, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are here. Where else do you want to go? In chapter 2, verse 23, he's eventually going to describe the false teaching and their, their practices as having the appearance of wisdom. Same word. So you want the appearance of wisdom or you want all the treasures of wisdom? Uh, I don't know if Andrew and uh, Christine are here this morning. There they are. My eye's still not working. Sorry. But... Christine was telling me she recently, they recently got engaged, if you didn't know that, so congratulations, guys. But Christine was telling me about, I was asking, you know, how did Andrew propose? And she mentioned how Andrew had asked her, you know, is, I think it was Tuesday, is Tuesday a good day for me to propose? Does that day work for you? <laughs> and, and I was, and, and, and so some guys, they try to surprise some guys, Andrew, he's, co he's coordinating it. He's going to make sure it works, okay? Now, one of the things that was, that's funny then about that is, is, is Christine is telling me, um, you know, throughout the day, then she can't really get any, I mean, that's the only thing she's thinking about, right? She goes to work. Could you imagine trying to work after, you're like, Andrew's going to propose to me. It's today. He asked me, you know, right? You can't shake that information once you know it. You can't move on from that information. The message is too great. And I think Paul is trying to uh, achieve a similar effect here. The mystery of God's redemption unveiled. You can't move away from that. Once you hear that, once you know the gospel of God saving sinners and even extending that salvation and his promises to the Gentiles, how are you going to move away from that? It's the mystery of the gospel of salvation. Don't veer away from this. This is nothing less than the unveiling of God's cosmic plan of redemption, Paul says. And so we've seen Paul's commission. We've seen Paul's message. And what's his aim then in proclaiming this message? What's Paul wanting to achieve in these churches as he preaches the mystery? Paul strives to see the churches reach full maturity and assurance in Christ. He preaches this, he preaches and he labors to preach the gospel, the mystery, so that the churches would reach full maturity and assurance in Christ. And by implication, they would resist the false teaching then that he has in view. So again, let's look at some passages here. In verse uh, 28, 
Paul says him, this Christ, is the one that we proclaim. That involves warning everyone of false teaching, presumably, and teaching everyone, positively building them up. With what? With all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He desires to preach so that everyone would reach maturity in Christ. Or look at chapter 2, verse 2. He, he labors, he struggles, that the churches, their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love for one another. There's a unity there. To what? Reach all the riches of full assurance. That they would reach full assurance. Or chapter 2, verse 4. I say this in order that, being fully assured, no one may delude you with plausible arguments, with good-sounding arguments otherwise. Or in verse 5, For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He longs to see their good order and firmness of faith. And these are words that likely come from a military context. Uh, we were talking in a text group, and it's almost like the contrast, if you think of, uh, sorry, elementary class, I know you're in here, but sometimes that elementary class is a little bit rowdy, right? You guys know that, where you go into the elementary class, and those students are really rambunctious, and they're all over the place. Contrast that with a military uh, platoon, who's, you know, they have their sergeant, and they're quite in order, and they, they follow strict orders, and everything is properly set. That's the language that Paul wants to see for the church here, is that everyone is in order and they're firm in their faith. Faith, they're stable. They're not going to be swayed by the false teaching. And so that's Paul's aim. We've seen his commission. We've seen his message. We've seen his aim. And now we get to see, fourthly, his struggle. Paul's struggle. Paul toils even to the extent of suffering in order to carry out this commission of preaching the gospel. Paul toils even to the extent of suffering in order to carry out this commission to preach the gospel. Look at verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. We'll come back to that verse. Look at verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all of God's energy that he powerfully works within me. Or look at chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. And so Paul wants him to know that he is, he is toiling for this aim. He is toiling, he is struggling to preach the gospel, to preach this mystery, to see the churches like the Colossians built up, fully assured, reaching maturity, resisting false teaching. He goes as far as suffering towards that end. And one of the obvious examples is as he's writing this in prison, he's, he's, he's suffering for them. Now, let's go back to chapter 1, verse 24, one of the more peculiar uh, lines in the book here and in Paul's writings in general where he talks about filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. And what, 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 what does he mean by that? Well, first of all, Paul is not saying that Christ's death for sin, his atonement, was somehow lacking. Okay? Throughout the book of Colossians, Paul makes clear that Christ's death is decisive in dealing with our sin. 
chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says that it's through Jesus that we have redemption. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Chapter 1, verse 22, where he says that Paul, or Paul says that Jesus has reconciled us through his death. He has reconciled us in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Chapter 2, verse 14, Christ has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, nailing it to the cross. Additionally, Paul has just gotten done in the passage that Sam preached, right? He just got done talking about Christ's preeminence and his sufficiency as our Lord and Savior. So Paul just got done elaborating on all that and to suggest then that somehow Jesus' death would somehow be lacking to save us, that would entirely undermine what he just got done saying. Furthermore, as he's going to combat these false teachers who say you need something in addition to Jesus, to here suggest that Jesus' death is lacking and that somehow he is the addition that they need, that also undermines his very message. I think what's helpful is to realize that this word here for uh, afflictions, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, this word uh, is never used by Paul, and I don't think elsewhere in the New Testament at all, actually. This word isn't ever used to refer to Jesus' death, his saving death. It's a more general word that is more commonly translated as tribulations, like in the book of Revelation, going through tribulations, difficulties, trials. And so what I think Paul is saying here is this, that Paul is saying that he shares in Christ's tribulations as he seeks to spread the gospel. Paul shares in Christ's tribulations as he seeks to spread the gospel. You'll notice that Paul says his suffering is not for sin, it's for the church. It's, it's in his ministry for the church. In verse 24, he says, it's for your sake. The church's sake, that is. It's for the sake of Christ's body, that is the church. Interestingly as well, this, this word for filling up, filling up what's lacking. Let me, let me offer a different translation just to help you see some connections. If we translate that as, uh, in my flesh, I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I am completing we get that same root, this, the root of the same word in verse 25, where Paul says that he strives to make the word of God complete, fully known, same word. Or in chapter 2, verse 2, he strives in order that the Colossians might reach all the full assurance, the complete assurance it is. So in each of these case, cases, he's using this root of completion. In other words, the idea is this. Paul wants to complete his sufferings he wants to complete the sufferings of Christ as he completes the proclamation of Christ in order that the Colossians might be completely assured of what they have in Christ. He's completing the sufferings of Christ that he shares with Christ to see Christ completely proclaimed and people completely assured in Christ. In other words, these sufferings have to do with his ministry, seeing Christ proclaimed and people assured in him. We might summarize it this way, that Christ's ministry in accomplishing salvation was, of course, a ministry of suffering. But that ministry of suffering is not over yet because Christ's people now participate in Christ's suffering as they spread the message of that salvation to the nations. 
Their suffering in spreading his salvation is an extension of Christ's suffering in accomplishing that salvation. And this is a theme we see across the New Testament. Even though the language here is a bit, maybe a bit more jarring to us, we see this sort of theme across the New Testament, where believers are called to share in Christ's suffering. And so as we are saved and we are made like Christ, we're familiar with that idea, right? That when we're saved, we're conformed to the image of Christ, and one day we will be conformed entirely to him, even resurrected with him. But one of the aspects of that conformity to Christ, according to the New Testament, is that we are also conformed to him in his suffering. As Jesus' path to, to glory was through suffering, so our path to be united with him in glory is through his sufferings as well, according to the New Testament. And so Romans 8, 17, Paul elsewhere says that we are heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may, we may also be glorified with him. Or in Philippians 3, 10 through 11, Paul says that he says that he strives to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, glory, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I want to become like Jesus in his death because I want to become like him in his resurrection. Or Peter describes Christ's suffering as creating a stencil for our own sufferings. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Peter says, for to, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example, most translations say. But the word for example there is actually a stencil. It's a pattern. It's a mold that we fit into. Christ suffered leaving us a stencil so that you might follow in his steps. So as my daughter Jubilee loves to color and she'll sometimes use a, like a, a stencil to trace things out, so our lives are being traced according to the sufferings of Christ. Traced according to that stencil. Or as Jesus himself taught in Mark 8, 34, for example, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Those who follow the crucified Savior take up their cross as well. We have a cross-shaped life. And so I don't think some people would say that Paul's suffering here, for instance, is sort of like what he's talking about in filling up the afflictions of Christ is unique to him as an apostle. And of course, Paul, Paul was uniquely appointed for afflictions. And I believe it's in Acts 9 when Christ appears to him. He uniquely appoints Paul for sufferings as he proclaims the gospel to the Gentiles throughout the rest of the book. And yet I do think that we can, we can use this language to refer to any believer, even Paul he doesn't just talk about himself, but in verse 28, he says, him we proclaim, that, that, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He sees his ministry as a part of a larger group of people also laboring for the gospel. And so as we send people overseas to be missionaries, and, and that involves toil, and that involves maybe suffering at times, I think we can speak of them filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions, that in as much as they are now carrying the gospel forward, and they're seeing that message of salvation go forward, the afflictions that Christ himself endured are now being extended by those united to him, and those who are carrying his message of salvation further. Or as you seek to share the gospel with a coworker, and maybe you, you, you face some difficulty there or a little bit of hostility there, that's a matter of filling up the afflictions of Christ as you extend it forward. 
And so one, I think we learn here as Paul shares his own struggle is that we learn that our own commitment to the gospel will undoubtedly entail losses and social opposition. And we need to be willing to accept that. We need to be ready for that. But Paul here, by sharing his own struggle, it's like that person, as I began the sermon, who kind of, they care for you. And so when they, when they offer you a critique or they offer you a challenge, you know where they're coming from. You know it's because they deeply care about you. Paul here is burying his heart for the Colossians. I struggle for you guys. I labor for you guys. I even suffer for the churches. Hear what I have to say now with respect to this false teaching. And as he's doing so, as he suffers for the gospel, in many respects, he's commending the gospel to them. He's showing them that he is so devoted to the gospel. He's so devoted to its cause that he's even willing to suffer for it. And this is, this is one, of the, one of the great arguments for Christianity. Maybe you've heard this idea before, but the idea of how many of the apostles, sometimes people say all the apostles, but we know at least of many of them actually died as martyrs. And we know that the apostles, many of them, you know, were kind of cowering initially when Jesus died. So what, what transformed a group of cowering people who didn't really totally understand this Jesus guy and why he was dying and all that? What transformed them into a people that went throughout the Roman Empire and eventually died themselves? Would they actually, in other words, have died for something that they knew to be false? It's a great argument for the resurrection. It's a great argument for the gospel of people that have actually been transformed such that they're willing to die for this message. Even Paul, who persecuted the church, he hated the cause of Christ so much that he tried to kill people, get them in prison. He, he sat at the stoning of Stephen, and now here he is suffering for that very message he tried to stamp out. He's commending the gospel to them by saying, I'm willing to suffer for this. And so lastly, we see Paul's response, fifth Paul's response. His response to laboring and toiling for the maturity is to rejoice. Paul rejoices considering all of his labor and his suffering as worth it. Back to chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in those sufferings for your sake. Or as he ends the section, at the beginning and at the end, he has the same language. Notice that. I rejoice in my sufferings. And then at the end in, verse 20, in chapter 2, verse 5. For though I'm absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order. In other words, Paul rejoices in his sufferings so that he can rejoice in their good order. Okay, so if you, maybe if you're on Instagram or social media and you follow Joby, you may have noticed that Joby, he's starting a business uh, related to his physical therapy, and he's been posting these, uh, these, I don't know if they're called stories or posts or whatever, but about like working out and training and different things like that. And Joby had one. Uh, that said, training through an injury isn't fun. And I saw that, and I saved the picture, and I went into editor, and I crossed out through an injury and just changed it to training isn't fun. And I sent it back to him, and I said, hey, Joby, I fixed it for you. <laughs> and so what is Paul doing here? Is Paul just like, I mean, training, I don't like, when I played soccer, like, I, just working out, just running, that's that's miserable, but put a ball in there where there's something, okay, like I can do that, right? But like working out for itself isn't fun. I don't understand you who like that. That's weird to me, okay? Is Paul just like, does he just like suffering? Has he just got some problem? No. 
It, it, it's, uh, if sometimes people ask me, Kirk, do you like the Packers? You're from kind of the Green Bay area. And I'll kind of be like, if I say yes, I think I know what they mean by that. They, they mean someone who's like full on into it, just obsessed with the Packers. So I kind of give them a, a squishy yes. Like a yeah, I, I like the Packers, but kind of, kind of not. And what I mean by that is like I am an unashamedly uh, fair weather fan. I know people, people knock on fair weather fans. I just call it being prudent with my time and energy. Like, if the Packers aren't good one year, I'm not going to watch them. Why would I waste my time doing that? If you want to, that's fine, but I'm not. But if they're good and they're in the playoffs, I'll watch. That's fun, all right? The idea here is I'm not going to suffer through a bad season. I don't rejoice in my sufferings for suffering's sake, okay? But if, but if it's worth it, all right. And that's what Paul has in view here. His sufferings are actually worth it. It's not just sufferings. He's suffering for the gospel. He's suffering to see these people built up. His sufferings benefit them, and so his sufferings are of value to him. He rejoices in his suffering in order that he might rejoice in their good order. And so I want to ask, what does that look like for us? If we've embraced this message ourselves, that the gospel is worth laboring for, what would that look like in a church? What would it look like for a church to hold to that? The most obvious application of this passage and what Paul is really getting at for them is that you continue to hold to the gospel. If we can look at Paul and we can look at his life and we can see this is a guy who was so convinced of the value and worth of the gospel that he got to proclaim the mystery of God's, the unveiling of God's plan of salvation for Gentiles, don't steer away from that message. I think it also means we get to know our neighbors. If we're so convinced that the labor, labor of the gospel is worth it, we get to know our neighbors, we start intentional relationships with our coworkers, we, we pray for our unsafe family members, where we seek to actually see the gospel spread as well. We, wanna, we want to reach the lost. I think it may mean that there are some here who could be uh, called to become a missionary, to go overseas. That, uh, that the gospel being worth it isn't just for some people, just like these, this kind of special class of Christians. Like all of us should be evaluating, could, could it be that God wants me to go become a missionary? Is there a way that, I, even you, okay, this isn't, I'm not just talking to some fringe group. You, all of you, could God be calling you to be a missionary, to see the gospel spread? Or, or, or full-time ministry, to pursue eldership in our church, to pursue even maybe vocational eldership, going to seminary and training to become a pastor or, or, or participating in uh, getting a job in a parachurch organization, what have you. The gospel, our calling to, to labor for the gospel is so serious. We should all be evaluating what is my role in seeing that done. And it doesn't mean that all of us, I'm not trying to communicate that in order to do that seriously, you have to be paid to do that and you have to be a full-time vocational worker. You can do that as a physical therapist. You can do that whatever your job is. But we should be evaluating how we spend our time and, and how we orient our lives for the sake of laboring for the very message that is at the heart of the universe. We, we, what would it look like for a church to embody this? We would labor for the good of our fellow church members. As Paul is laboring for these people that he hasn't even met. He hasn't even met these people face to face, he says. How much more should we be willing to labor, do gospel labor to see people grow in the gospel? How much more should we be willing to do that for our fellow church members who we actually know? 
what does a church look like that considers labor for the gospel worth it? First of all, I think it means that you as an individual are actually part of a local church, that you're formally committed to laboring with and for a particular people. So you've committed to a local church. I think it means being invested in that church. So not treating the church as some sort of like auxiliary in your life. Like here's my life, here's the most important things and the church is kind of this thing over here that provides maybe some spiritual benefit for me. But if as Paul is presenting, like this is the center of who we are. It ought to be the center of our lives. That we ought to, we ought to give the church community, the gospel community, a central role in our lives in laboring for what the church is after in its mission to see the gospel advanced. I think it means befriending and serving even those in the church that you don't like, uh, who maybe you find annoying and uncomfortable. There are people like that in the church, okay? Let's just be honest. We don't all necessarily uh, fit in terms of our personalities with each other. We wouldn't all be friends if it wasn't for the gospel. But if Paul is willing to suffer jail time for believers, I think we can suffer a little bit of social discomfort befriending people that maybe rub us the wrong way. I think a church like this is a church that's made up of people who are invested in discipling others, helping to see them reach maturity in Christ, laboring to see your fellow church members reach maturity in Christ. This is a church with, with people who show up to their small group, if, if they're a part of a small group per se, and, and, and they're not merely looking to see what they get out of it, which is great, but they're eager to see how they can encourage other people to see the gospel advance even a bit more every small group. It's a church where, you know, you have someone who maybe starts a book study with others in the church to help them grow in their understanding of scripture. It's a church where, where folks give, uh, open up their home to allow people in in order to get to know them and build relationships for the sake of the gospel and discipleship. It's folks who give up their time and their energy to serve on setup crew or to serve in the nursery in order to make Sunday mornings possible. It's a church with people who volunteer to teach in the elementary class, even when the elementary class is difficult. Sorry, guys. <laughs> it's, it's providing food trains for someone after they have a baby or, or, or after open-heart surgery. It's a church that, that becomes a, a part-time moving company because we care for people and we want to help them as they move into their new home. It's as Paul says in Galatians 6.9, not growing weary and doing good, for in due season we will reap. We don't grow weary in doing good because we're confident that the gospel is worth it and in due season we will reap. And I think as the book closes, when Paul uses this language of toiling and laboring again, he talks about laboring in prayer. It's a church that prays, that prays to see the gospel advance in our church and across the globe. And so the gospel is worth laboring for. And this isn't, again, hopefully, hopefully this is coming through, this isn't just some call to labor for the sake of laboring. Um, like we just got to toil through it. I, I may have told this story before, but when I was, and this may surprise you, but when I was younger, like middle school or so, I got volunteered to participate in a fine arts comp competition. My school kind of required everyone to do something. And I just like wasn't into it. I didn't really care. And so I played drums, I played drums and I played snare. And so I volunteered to do a snare so solo. But because I did not care about this fine arts competition, I didn't practice at all. And so I showed up to this 
thing. I just, I'm just going to like phone it in. So I just show up and all, all of a sudden all these people from my school show up to watch me. And I'm like, well, this isn't what I wanted. Like, I'm just going to make some stuff up. So I'm up there and I'm just like, just like going nuts and just making up stuff, not following the music at all. Cause apparently I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to, uh, I didn't realize that this, at this at the time, but I wasn't allowed to use my music when I played. I was just going to sight read it, but they took my music from me. So I'm like, well, <laughs> this isn't going to go well. So I just made up some stuff. And the judges were like, well, that was really skilled and whatnot, but you didn't play the song at all. And I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I have this part of my personality is like, if I don't see the value of something, I just don't really like, I'm probably not going to put that much effort into it. Or if you've ever like filled out medical forms where you're like, the doctor already got this information for me. Why am I filling this out again? Stuff like that. It's like, what's the point of this? The gospel is not like that. The gospel is not some medical form filling out the same information you've already filled out. It is the mystery of God's plan of redemption disclosed in Christ. That's what we get to labor for. The very work of Christ that has already saved us and can save others as well. The very, the very gospel that not only saves us by forgiving us of our sins and justifying us before God, but also transforms us as believers and has the power to save and to transform our fellow church members. And so as we participate in the Lord's Supper this morning, that is what we're celebrating. As Paul says, it's Christ among you, even the Gentiles. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's, it's a declaration that the gospel has even reached us in Milwaukee here that the, the, the bread and the cup symbolizing Christ's body and his blood given over for us in his saving death for us, that this salvation has reached even us here based on the labors of those who came before us to bring the gospel to us, a gospel that we now get to participate in.